Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text INTRO to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. This is Day 33. Today we will be reading Part 4, Necessary Counsels Concerning Temptations That Occur Frequently in the Christian Life. And we'll be reading specifically chapters 1 through 3, which are pages 369 to 377 in the Ascension edition of the book. Before we get into the reading, a quick look then at what we are covering today. So, as you heard, we're transitioning into part 4. We're about three quarters of the way through the book because, as you'll come to discover, part 4 and part 5 are pretty short by comparison to part 3. And in this part, we're addressing the different temptations that crop up along the way as we seek to live a devout life. And the first that we're going to have to confront is the temptation not to begin living the devout life. But then he'll go on from that point to describe different temptations or kind of temptation in general. So that way, when he moves or passes on to a description of particular temptations, we have a kind of framework for understanding what they are and how they work. So with that, then let's get into the reading. And we can start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly. For the praise and glory of thy name. Amen. Chapter 1. That we must not bother ourselves about what the children of the world say. As soon as worldly people perceive that you desire to lead a devout life, they will fire a thousand arrows of mockery and detraction at you. The more malicious will attribute your change to hypocrisy, sanctimoniousness, and trickery. They will say that the world has frowned upon you and that this rejection has led to your conversion to God. Your friends will hasten to register a thousand protestations which they imagine to be very prudent and kind. They will say, you will fall into depression, you will lose your status in the world, you will become insufferable. You will grow old before your time. Your domestic affairs will suffer. You must live in the world as the world does. You can be saved without so many mysteries, and so on with a thousand such trifling claims. My dear Philothea, all of this is nothing more than foolish and wretched babbling. These people have no real care either for your health or for your affairs. Our Savior himself said, quote, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. End quote. John 15, 19. We have seen gentlemen and ladies pass whole nights, no indeed many nights, playing chess or cards. And can there be any state of mind more painful, melancholy, or gloomy than theirs? And yet, the world does not say a word, and their friends never trouble themselves about such choices. However, if we spend an hour in meditation, or rise in the morning a little earlier than ordinary in order to prepare for communion, Everyone runs to fetch the doctor to cure us of hypochondria and depression. They will pass a month's worth of nights in dancing, and no one will complain. But after going to the midnight service on Christmas Eve, everyone coughs and complains the next morning. Who does not see that the world is an unjust judge? 
gracious and benevolent to its own children, but harsh and severe toward the children of God. We can never stand well with the world without losing our souls along with it. We can never satisfy it, for it too is capricious. Our Savior said, quote, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a glutton and a drunkard. Matthew 11, verses 18 to 19. This is the truth, Philothea. If we relax and indulge in mirth, play, or dancing with the world, the world will be scandalized at us. And if we do not, it will accuse us of hypocrisy or melancholy. If we dress well, the world will attribute it to some bad motive, and if we neglect our dress, it will claim that we are cheap. Our mirth will be called dissolute and our mortification sullenness. Looking upon us with an evil eye, the world will never be pleased with us. It will interpret our imperfections to be sins, our venial sins to be mortal, and our sins of frailty to be sins of malice. By contrast, as St. Paul says, love is kind, whereas the world is malicious. While love thinks no evil, see 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, Dewey Reams Version, the world, by contrast, always thinks evil, see 1 John 5, 19, and when it cannot condemn our actions, it will accuse our intentions. Whether or not the sheep have horns, whether they are white or black, the wolf will not fail to devour them if he can. Do what we may, the world will still wage war against us. If we are long at confession, it will wonder how we can have so much to say. If we stay but a short time, it will say we have not confessed all our sins. It will carefully investigate all our deeds, and for one little word of anger, it will protest that our temper is unbearable. The care that we exercise over our affairs will be judged to be the result of greed, and our meekness folly. However, as for the children of the world, their anger is called generosity, their avarice good stewardship, and their familiar exchanges honorable interactions. Spiders always spoil the work of bees. Let us disregard this blind world, Philothea. Let it cry out as long as it pleases, like an owl, to disturb the birds of the day. Let us be steadfast in our designs and constant in our resolutions. Our perseverance will prove whether we have truly sacrificed ourselves to God and dedicated ourselves to a devout life. Comets and planets appear almost equally bright in the night sky, but comets are only fiery balls that quickly pass away, whereas planets retain their brightness perpetually. So too, hypocrisy and true virtue look very much alike, but it is easy to distinguish them from one another, for hypocrisy cannot last long, but is quickly scattered like smoke, whereas true virtue is always firm and constant. Devotion gains much security when, at the start, we suffer reproaches and calumny on its account. In that way, we avoid the danger of pride and vanity, which sometimes destroy the fruits of devotion as the midwives of Egypt, by the order of the wicked Pharaoh, killed the male children of the Israelites on the very day of their birth. Exodus 1, verses 15 and 16. We are crucified to the world, and the world ought to be crucified to us. Galatians 6, 14. It judges us to be fools. Let us judge it to be mad. Chapter 2 that we must be of good courage. Light, though beautiful and pleasant to our eyes, nevertheless dazzles them after we have been in the dark for a long time. Before we become familiar with the inhabitants of any country, be they ever so courteous and gracious, we feel somewhat odd while among them. It may well happen, Philothea, that this change of life may cause you some feelings of revulsion, and that this broad and general farewell made to the follies and vanities of the world may at times cause you sadness and discouragement. If this should be the case, have some patience, I pray, for it will come to nothing. It is nothing but a little odd feeling occasioned by this new state of affairs. When it is passed away, you will experience ten thousand consolations. 
It may perhaps be painful for you at first to relinquish the praise that your vanities have received from fools and flatterers. However, would you, for its sake, forfeit that eternal glory with which God will assuredly recompense you? The vain amusements and pastimes that you have devoted your time to up to this point will again present themselves to allure your heart and cause it to return to them. However, will you renounce eternal happiness for such deceptive follies? Believe me, if you persevere, you will soon receive consolations that are so delightful and agreeable that you will feel bound to confess that the world had nothing but gall in comparison to this honey, likewise holding that one day of devotion is better than a thousand years of worldly life. Psalm 84.10 However, you will see well that the mountain of Christian perfection is exceedingly high. Ah, you will say, how can I ever reach its summit? Take courage, Philothea. When young bees begin to assume their form, we call them nymphs. As yet, they are unable to fly to flowers, mountains, or neighboring hills in order to gather honey. However, little by little, feeding on the honey prepared for them by older bees, their wings appear, and they acquire sufficient strength to fly and seek their food all over the country. It is true that as yet, we are but nymphs or little bees in devotion, and cannot yet rise up to the heights that we seek, namely, nothing less than the apex of Christian perfection. However, if we begin to take shape through our desires and resolutions, our wings will soon begin to grow, and we shall one day become fully grown spiritual bees, able to fly. In the meanwhile, let us feed on the honey of the many good instructions left to us by devout people from of old, and let us pray to God that he may give us wings like a dove, so that we may not only be enabled to fly during the time of this present life, but also may rest in the eternity of the life to come. Chapter 3. On the Nature of Temptations and the Difference Between Experiencing Them and Consenting to Them Imagine in your mind's eye, Philothea, a young princess who is greatly beloved by her spouse. Some wicked person sends her a shameful confidant with wicked proposals in hand. First, this confidant tells the princess his master's proposals. Second, the princess is pleased or displeased with them. Thirdly, either she consents or she refuses. In the same manner, Satan, the world, and the flesh, seeing a soul espoused to the Son of God, send her temptations and suggestions by which, one, sin is proposed to her, two, she is either pleased or displeased with the suggestion, and three, she either consents or refuses. These are, in short, the three steps of the descent into sin, temptation, delectation, and consent. And although these three acts are not so plainly seen in all kinds of sins, nonetheless, we can recognize them quite clearly in all sins of greater weight. Even if a temptation to any sin whatsoever might happen to last during life, it would never render us displeasing to the divine majesty, so long as we take no pleasure in it and do not yield our consent to it. The reason this is so is because in temptation we do not act, but endure what happens to us, and just as we take no pleasure in this, so too we cannot incur any guilt therein. St. Paul suffered a long time the temptations of the flesh, and yet he was so far from being displeasing to God because of this, that God, on the contrary, was glorified by it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7-9 to Blessed Angela de Foligno felt such cruel temptations of the flesh that she moves us to pity when we read her account of them. Great, too, were the temptations endured by St. Francis and St. Benedict, causing one to throw himself into thorns and the other into snow in order to lessen them, and yet they lost nothing of God's favor, but rather greatly increased therein. Therefore, Philothea, you must be courageous amid temptations and never suppose you have been overcome for as long as they displease you, observing well the difference between being tempted and consenting to temptation. We may feel temptations though they displease us. However, we can never consent to them unless they please us, since such pleasure is ordinarily the first step toward consent. 
Therefore, let the enemies of our salvation lay as many traps and allurements in our way as they please. Let them always stand at the door of our heart in order to gain admittance. Let them make as many proposals to us as they wish. Nonetheless, so long as we continue steadfast and taking no pleasure in such temptations, it is utterly impossible that we should offend God any more than the husband of the princess spoken of earlier could be displeased with her on account of the wicked message sent to her if she takes no pleasure whatever in it. However, in this case, there is this difference between the princess and the soul. Namely, once the princess hears the wicked proposal, she may, if she pleases, drive away the messenger and never suffer him to appear in her presence any more. However, it does not always lie within the power of the soul not to feel temptation, though it is always in its power not to consent to it. Therefore, for this reason, even though the temptation might last for a very long while, nonetheless it cannot hurt us for as long as it is disagreeable to us. But, with respect to the delight that may follow temptation, we must note that just as there are two parts in the soul, the inferior and the superior, and just as the inferior does not always follow the superior but acts independently of it, it frequently happens that the inferior part takes delight in the temptation without the consent of the superior, nay, sometimes against its will. This is the strife and warfare described by the Apostle St. Paul when he says, quote, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, end quote, Galatians 5.17, and that there is, quote, a law in our members warring against the law of the mind, end quote, see Romans 7.23. Have you never seen, Philothea, a great wood fire covered with ashes? If you were to come back ten or twelve hours later in search of fire there, there would only be a spark in the midst of the hearth, indeed quite hidden. And yet there it is, readily found, and with it one may kindle anew all the other coals that lie extinguished round it. So too with charity, which is our spiritual life, in the midst of great and violent temptations. The temptation, causing delight in the inferior part of our soul, covers the whole of it as it were with ashes, and reduces the love of God to a spark for it appears no longer except in the midst of the heart, at the very bottom of the spirit. And even there it seems barely perceptible, and we must look quite hard to find it. Nonetheless, it is truly there, since notwithstanding all the trouble and disorder we feel in our soul and our body, we still remain resolved never to consent to the sin nor to the temptation. And the delight that pleases the outward man displeases the inward, so that although it surrounds the will, this delight nonetheless does not penetrate into the latter. Thus, we see that such delight is contrary to the will, and for this reason, it cannot be sin. In this section, we see a few key themes emerge. Uh, first, St. Francis is stressing the fact, or underlining the fact, that if we try to live a devout life, we have to recognize that it's not going to be easy. So that should be part of our understanding. We needn't be surprised by the fact or scandalized by the fact. If you haven't heard that word scandalized used, it means like we shouldn't set before ourselves a kind of stumbling block on account of the fact that we find the devout life to be difficult. So we should just kind of meditate on our Lord's preaching in the gospel, namely that the world is going to hate us and that the world's not going to be consistent in its hatred. It's going to be like there's, there's almost no stick unfit for the beating of believers. So the world, the flesh, the devil, they're going to come after us and they're going to accuse us, uh, they're going to aggress us, they're going to seek any means whatsoever to discourage us from our pursuit. So that's the first, uh, this recognition that it's not going to be easy. Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, the Christian life for you, would you say easy, not easy, St. Francis of Sales, is he on, is he off? Your thoughts. Yeah, what you say is true, but for me, it's really easy, really. You know, I'm blessed, <laughs> too blessed. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely true, and this is not something that Father Gregory's, like, 
interpreting in a hyper exaggerated way. It's not something that St. Francis is proposing as a sort of, I don't know, strange thing. You know, Christ himself says that, you know, the world will hate us. Uh, it will hate Christians for a whole host of reasons, as Father Gregory said. Something about a, there's no stick unfit for the beating of believers. Um, it's 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 true, but this is why Saint Francis proposes to us before talking about these temptations of en- even entering into the devout life that the devout life begins with the virtues of patience and humility because of what we're going to face because. It's not, and it's not just the world that is a deterrent. You know, we ourselves are deterrents in our own conversion because it's not always easy to persevere, to stay the course. It's not always easy to to continue to show up, to continue to pray, to, to pursue those things that are good and devout. But the reality is, is that you know, our Lord is calling us. He's offering the grace. So it's not, it's not as if we face this problem single handedly, right? I think that's something I know. Sometimes I I even lose sight of that it's that it's the Lord's work, and um, it's ours to like be part of to participate in. Yeah, I think um, I appreciate the sensibility of Saint Francis de Sales that he wants to just give us the straight truth. He doesn't want to sugarcoat it, or he doesn't want to defend us from the difficulty which lies in store. Because I think sometimes we want to protect people from the difficulty of life. And when we do that, sometimes we can actually complicate matters. So it's like, you know, think of a mother raising your young children and, you know, her kids are whatever, going to the dentist and maybe they're not especially diligent in brushing their teeth. So they're going to have some procedures which will cause them pain or discomfort of some sort. She can say like, oh, it's going to be great, top notch. You'll get a you know piece of candy afterwards. And then the child has the experience at the dentist's office, which doesn't at all correspond with what mom promised. And then the next time when she promises something nice and sweet, he might be a little bit suspicious. Whereas if she says, okay, we're going to the dentist's office. You didn't brush too well, which is okay. I still love you. Uh, But you're going to have things done to your teeth, which are going to hurt you. But that's okay because we're going to try harder. And he's going to be like, okay, I can brace myself for that. I feel like St. Francis is like a good parent who's instructing us in the Christian life in its first steps and just giving us the straight truth. Because I know what to expect, I can kind of brace my heart for it. But if I don't know what to expect, or if I think it's going to be all fun and games, then when I set about to live this devout life, I'm going to be thrown for a loop. So I don't know if you have uh, any particular uncle strategies for informing small children as to the terrors that await them, but uh, I don't know how this how this corresponds to your own experience. <laughs> yeah, um, uncle strategies are limited at this point in time because neither of my nieces or nephews are over a year old. So I don't think they're yet pursuing like the devout life on their own, but maybe <laughs> they are. Uh, I, I think again and again, it's just important to recognize that we will be tempted and whether that's and that's like a broad thing to say too because sometimes we think well what is what does that even mean we can think of Christ being tempted in the desert by satan are we going to be tempted directly by satan maybe not probably not doesn't happen to everybody in such a direct way as it did to Christ or you know other other people are we tempted to sin yeah we are at times but temptations can also just be distractions or laziness or you know yeah as father gregory was saying even the temptation to not begin is something that we have to face so we shouldn't be surprised that we'll, we're going to be tempted and sometimes being surprised is the worst kind of thing because we might think oh i didn't think i was gonna have to deal with this or i thought i was over this and so like patience you know patience patience perseverance perseverance keep showing up keep coming back um 
trust that the Lord's at work. So I, I that for me is the sort of foundation of of all of this here of of, of facing temptation. It's don't be surprised by it, don't be thrown by it, and don't be um, like scared by it. I guess. Yeah. As we kind of move through chapters one through three, we find a classic image of St. Francis de Sales, which gets picked up in the subsequent tradition as a way to explain temptation. And he describes a suitor who, whatever you would say, poses his suit or suits. I don't know what the verb form is, but a suitor who approaches a woman to ask her to you know, do something with him, whether it be like a, an illicit affair or a marriage proposal or something like that. Um, and he describes three stages in this suit. So first, you know, he, he makes the proposal and then it causes either delight or sorrow in the woman's heart. And then third and finally, she offers her response to that offer. And St. Francis de Sales says that this corresponds to temptation. All right. So the, the proposal is made. And then what he calls delectation, which is a fancy word for just delight, all right, the, the kind of movement of her heart in recognition, either that this is a good thing for her or this is a bad thing for her. And then her consent, which is the choice that she makes in light of the proposal and how it causes her to feel. So using this then as a, as a schema for understanding, as like a kind of framework for understanding temptation, I think it helps us to make sense of our own experience because I think a lot of people are nervous. Okay, was that just a temptation or did I indulge in a sin? How do I make sense of it? You know, what's the what's the dividing line or what's the point of determination? So maybe just, yeah, your thoughts on temptation and how we sort it out. Yeah, I think it's really important to to say and to reiterate that the fact that temptation itself is is not sin. It's what we do with that temptation. And that's why this sort of example of um, the suitor suiting or pursuing or whatever the suitor does, <laughs> I too am at a loss for what the <laughs> verb would be, uh, is, is an important one for us to understand because this sort of like threefold process, there's first like the presentation of, of what could be or what is on offer and therein we're tempted right that yeah we can think of, of an example of like of eat like a food that we've eaten and that yet there's more food on the table and we're tempted to take some more food and then we either delight in the fact that yes there's more there's not or or we take sorrow and like oh no there's more food and we decide what to do with it but the, the temptation in itself is is not a, a sin and often the question then is like well what's the difference how do i know if it was just a temptation or if i sinned um well then that's a question of our what i usually describe as as your or our participation in that temptation? Do I take that into myself? Do I make that my own by either making a, a choice to pursue it, a choice to not act when I should act, um, especially with thoughts? You know, did I, I was tempted to think either an unchaste thought or an uncharitable thought. Um, did I, was that sinful? Well, I usually ask the question, did you make that your own? Did you entertain that thought or did you try to chase it away? Those sort of things. So it's really a question of like, how do I respond or do I respond to the temptation? I don't know if that's helpful or if that's a way you approach the question, Father Gregory, but I think it'd sometimes be helpful to begin to distinguish between just a temptation and then whether or not there's sin or you know our involvement with that temptation. Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, sometimes we can become overly focused or we become, can become too focused on determining whether or not a sin has occurred and I don't think that's always the most fruitful pursuit because, yeah, there are some things in the spiritual life where it's really hard to pin down the precise moment, you know, when you think about the consecration of the 
bread and wine, which become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like what precise word in the formula of consecration is the one that affects the change? It's like, well, no, it's it's the pronouncing of the whole, you know, text, the whole formula. So it's something that 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 shouldn't be broken down into parts that are too small to really make sense of. Sometimes you need to take the thing all together in order to get a good sense of what's actually taking place. So I think, you know, the things that you highlight, namely the delight that you take in a thing and whether you make it your own, which I think is a great way to describe consent. Because when we consent, we say, this is mine and I am its. <laughs> and then it becomes part of us and we become part of it. So we come bound up with whatever choice we have, uh, we've made. And so I think, yeah, when we're trying to evaluate whether we've sinned or whether we were merely tempted, we take stock of the delight that we took in the thing and we take stock of the way in which we interiorized the thing, the way in which we made it our own, the way in which we adopted it into our life. And it may be hard, you know, to pin down whether or not that took place in the full sense, but we can confess it, you know, in a spirit of um, caution, I suppose, or yeah, just making sure to cover our bases. And then we move on from there, seeking to, yeah, cultivate the dispositions which lead to true holiness, which is to say like, Lord, win my heart for yourself and setting ourselves before the Lord in prayer so that we can gain a deeper appreciation of how lovely he in fact is so that that love can set in order the other lower loves. So we think about it in terms of like, what, what do I want to delight in or what is God inspiring in me to delight in? And then how can I choose in light of that aspiration or how can I choose in light of that desire, even if it just be a kind of baby desire or a growing desire? So, yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, maybe then pass it back to you to round out the episode with uh, with any final thoughts you might have. I think just to re- reiterate what I've what I've said, what you've already said, that that temptation is going to come at us. It's going to come after us um, and not to be thrown by that reality, but to trust that God gives us the grace to withstand that reality and also to choose the good and be formed um, in light of our being tempted. So I'll leave you with with that thought, trust that God's at work. There's, there's nothing more real than that. Boom. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. That is it for today. So thanks so much for having tuned in. Be sure if you have not yet to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, to download the reading plan and support the production of this podcast, please visit ascensionpress.com slash Catholic classics. And if you'd like to hear some of our conversation on other subjects, Follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with the occasional guest, scriptural meditation, and even a special series or two. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. So then know of our prayers for you, please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Catholic Classics.